Welcome back, everybody, to the Roses and Rhetoric Podcast. As always, I am your host, Jimmy Hackett, and with me, my charming co-host, Joseph Stanford. Okay, so we're going to build off of the format that we did last time. Uh, both Joe and I prepared another uh, pre-written uh, statement. Uh, again, um, I have not seen Joe's. Joe's not seen mine. So when we read them online right now, would it be the first time either one of us is uh, is hearing each other's work? Um, and the idea here is to kind of preserve some of the spontaneity in the conversation. Uh, so uh, without further ado. I'm going to turn it over to Joe. He'll read his, I'll read mine. And then after we're both done reading, we will uh, discuss both simultaneously. So Joe, when you're ready, take it away. Okay, this piece is called The Perfect Workday by Joseph Stanford. What goes into the perfect workday? I, as well as countless others, wonder this during my soulless morning routine and commute to work. Luckily, over my career as a nine-to-five employee, I've discovered a few hacks that you, the unmotivated employee can implement today into your work life. Remember, the goal is to spend as little effort as possible without making people think you're a slacker. I like to call it working smarter, not harder. Workday hack number one, don't work full days. Working full days are for losers. The fewer hours you spend at work, the fewer hours you have to be miserable. Let's start with when you arrive at work. The worst possible time to arrive at work is at the same time as your boss or even after. If you and your boss get to work at the same time, your boss will expect you to leave more or less at the same time as them. They now know how many hours you're there for. You'll seem like a slacker if you leave work before they do. This is problematic if you like working a full day or if you don't like working a full day. Remember, you're at work only to create the illusion of hard work. Actual hard work is for losers, like your boss. I advise getting to work five to ten minutes before your boss. This is just enough time to boot up your computer and ignore any system updates your computer tries to push on you. Try to get there early enough so that you look busy when your boss arrives, but not early enough that you waste any more time at work than you need to. Now, when your boss does arrive, he or she can only assume that you've been there hard at work since the wee hours of the morning. Your boss's first thoughts upon arriving at work will be, wow, that Joe is a real hard worker. He must be coming in real early each morning since he's here before me and already hard at work. Nothing makes a boss happier than pretending than walking into into and at work and seeing their star employee vigorously typing at their computer, pretending to be hard at work. Pro tip, pre-schedule meaningless emails to be sent out the night before for 5 a.m. the next day and make sure to copy your boss. The timestamp 5 a.m. emails will make you seem like an overachiever you aren't. If it seems you've been working since 5 a.m., no eyebrows will be raised when you start packing up to leave at 1 p.m. Workday hack number two, don't be predictable. Work in multiple places throughout the office or campus. Take on different projects from different stakeholders. Look at Bob, for example. Bob is a hard worker but not a smart worker. Bob is a predictable creature of habit. If Bob isn't at his desk, he is either at lunch or gone for an extended bathroom break shortly thereafter. Don't be like Bob. Nobody needs to know the schedule of your foot input and or output. Bob only takes on one project at a time. He has no scapegoat projects to attribute his lack of progress on others. 
Instead, be like Joe. Joe has multiple desks in different buildings and multiple projects he can be working on at any given time. If Joe isn't at his desk, people assume he's at his other desk or in the field. What a hard worker Joe is. He's never at his desk and always running around elsewhere working on all his projects. Workday hack number three, keep it simple. When explaining things to your coworkers, don't use complicated or technical analogies to describe them. Just because your coworkers use technical jargon doesn't mean you should. For example, instead of saying, the temperature of the system dropped logarithmically over time, say, the temperature fell like an Irish hooker's panties. The simpler the analogy, the better. Plus, you have the added benefit of eliminating any chance of misinterpretation. Workday hack number four, make people feel more important than they are. Pretend the things your coworkers say are interesting. Nothing makes Bob happier than when Bob feels listened to. Life is easier when Bob is happy. During face-to-face -face meetings with Bob, make sure you maintain good eye contact while remembering to make subtle face gestures from time to time so that Bob thinks you actually care about what he's saying. Remember, we're not paid to solve problems. We're paid to tolerate other people's problems. An occasional puckering of the bottom lip while stroking your chin or upward gaze while nodding from time to time will make Bob feel good. And you will feel good as well for earning your pay. In the area of face masks, subtle mouth expressions made for Bob's benefit will go unseen. I suggest making up for this obstacle with an over-exaggerated head movements or nodding. On that note, masks have the added benefit of allowing you to stick your tongue out at Bob as you nod your head in agreement. Now, a question that I get all the time. Joe, what if I generally don't care what Bob is saying and start falling asleep mid-conversation? Can I find a mask that covers my eyes too? Unfortunately not. Try giving yourself physical pain to complement the mental pain you're feeling in that moment. A quick snap to your wrist with a rubber band or a sharp fingernail pinch to your thigh will do whenever Bob's nasally self-centered drone starts adding weight to your eyelids. Workday hack number five, the work nap. Most workers mitigate tiredness and fatigue with obscene amounts of office coffee, ruining their bowels and compromising that night's sleep in the process. Remember, we're at work to look busy and collect a paycheck, not to put your bowels and circadian rhythm at risk. Instead of chugging cheap coffee, I recommend the work nap. But where's the best place to achieve the work nap? I'll tell you. Find a quiet and low traffic bathroom at work. I suggest the all gender restroom, if your company has one, because people will be less likely to ask questions. Now sit down on the toilet and lean forward to rest your arms and forehead on your thighs. Catch some Z's. You've been at it all day trying to look busy. You deserve some rest. If a coworker ever calls you out on your extended restroom visit, just tell them that you ate the cafeteria nachos and they aren't agreeing with your system. This will crush all suspicion of sleeping on the job. There are a few drawbacks to this method, of course. Maybe your coworker Bob actually did eat the cafeteria nachos for lunch and picked the stall next to you. This is why I recommend bringing earplugs and a face mask into the restroom. One to block sounds and the other to block orders. odors. Workday hack number six, email. Let's say you finished all your meetings for the day, fully recharged your energy levels with a nap, and still have a few hours to kill before being able to make an inconspicuous departure back home. 
You could wander around the office and distract some of the overachievers from actually doing work with pointless banter. That's one option. Another option is to go sit at your desk and go through email. For emails where you're expected to actually do something, I recommend forwarding them to someone else who actually cares. I like forwarding emails to other people with statements like, Steve, can you advise on Bob's concern below? Never put yourself in a position where you're the only one that can answer certain questions or do certain things. This is a surefire way to actually have work to do. Some people call this strategy lazy. I call it being a team player. For the rare email where you don't have anyone else to pawn the actual work off on, I recommend taking that time to put emails in different folders, pretending you'll read or respond to them at a later date. Also, abide by the two email rule. If someone really needs your help with something, they will send you a second email after you've ignored the first. This easily eliminates 75% of the work you're expected to do. Not responding to emails also supports the illusion that you're a busy person and you don't have the bandwidth to respond to the petty emails of the peasants around you. And there you have it, Jim. I urge our listeners to tune in next time for more work hacks. No, don't. To anybody listening, don't worry. We'll go ahead and add in after the fact that beautiful applause noise we all have at the beginning of our oh, podcast. Uh, very good, very good. So I have. A, I, I was taking notes on that on uh, my my favorite graph paper uh, that I've talked so much about off air. Uh, maybe one day we'll get a sponsor from them, and I will uh, say their name on air. But until then, just know that I, I am taking notes and I will uh, follow up with uh, work hacks and uh, maybe give a couple of my own. Uh, but before then, I'm going to turn over to my statement today. So uh, my statement is called a rebuttal to Pascal's wager. As best I can tell, my earliest memory is waking up in a pile of vomit, an abrupt end to nap time but nothing more serious than a change of clothes. I was in daycare, pre-preschool. I was a harmlessly sick child, in and out of the doctor's office, but never for anything too serious. A living example of, this too shall pass. I am sad to report that I never, and not for lack of effort, never developed the skills of a successful vomiteer, always seeming to make quite a mess of the whole affair, always seeming to to split between the mouth hole and the nose holes in improper proportion. Contrast this to a friend of mine growing up, who we will call Carlos, a Cuban-American who, as a child, possessed the composure of a neurosurgeon. I once recall him being ill, staying at our house while his parents were at work. I remember him effortlessly going to the bathroom to throw up, casually walking to the toilet, leaning over the bowl, evacuating, and then getting back to life. No laying on the ground in front of the toilet, no incidental splattering, just stand and deliver. Truly an amazing feat, and for a child no less, we couldn't have been any older than the fourth grade. Now, as always, I ask for the humble reader to indulge me, for Carlos had one other talent that was at least one standard deviation ahead of the rest of us, a one-armed hook shot in basketball that never missed. This kid had a rocket launcher equipped with heat-seeking missiles. It was thinking about this feature 
and its setting, the recess field, when I began thinking about two things, happy memories and what we are doing to create more of them. What are any of us engaged in on a daily basis that will contribute to something as meaningful as a recess field to a child? What is the long-term mission of humanity? We have, in a rather mysterious way, lost sight of the magnificent fact that we all truly do exist as conscious beings and in a universe whose existence might ultimately never be explained. Each of these facts should cause some sort of widespread species level sense of ecstasy. Perhaps that is why we have simply learned to ignore these facts, but in ignoring them, we still found it necessary to answer them. We substitute religion as placeholders until we have more time for a deeper investigation. And I think there is a good argument to be made for this trade. The primitive world was a scary place, and I am not advocating for some sort of anti-modernist reversal to quote simpler times. I am rather viewing humanity's struggle as a long-term investment in a project worthy of the facts mentioned above. I will posit that the often repeated Pascal's wager is wrong on probabilistic and logical grounds. And we will start with his premise. Pascal's wager argues that one should act as though God exists, since if God does exist, you are ensuring an afterlife in heaven. In the face of equal odds, God existing or God not existing, only a fool would wager a bet that had the potential to lead to eternal suffering in hell. I will not go through all of the arguments of Pascal They are easy enough to read, and I've covered them enough here for my rebuttal. I believe Pascal's miscalculation is not in the the wager, but rather in his imprecision in what he is betting on. In fact, Pascal is not betting on God at all. Rather, he is betting on heaven. He is betting on reward. This is reducing human life and reason for his argument state, or rather, and reason for his argument states that to bet against God is unreasonable, to satisfy a desire for existence. Funny enough, this outline of rationality is the one that Nassim Taleb works out in Skin in the Game. What is rational is that which leads to human survival. Fair enough, and I certainly accept the premise that survivability should guide human decision-making. But my concern is equating God with heaven. This is an impermissible mistake in the logic of Pascal. It must be corrected. And as such, I propose the following. Accepting the premise of eternal life as man's ultimate goal, we must work to construct a universe that is perpetual. To motivate us to construct such a universe, we must assume heaven does not exist, but worthy of existing. And the goal of humanity should be the creation of heaven. We must work to create a perpetual and just universe. In fact, It is hard to conceive of any other goal that would be worthy of the possession of the human process. In fact, as it stands, humans have no concrete reason to believe that life exists in other places in the universe. We may be the only vestige of justice in the universe and possibly in existence. We then have to consider that by its nature, justice is superior to injustice and that for justice to exist permanently, human life must also exist permanently. For that to occur, the universe or some other vessel must also be perpetual. The quest of mankind is not to settle for a belief in heaven. 
It is to do the hard work of establishing a perpetual just universe. End of quote. Awesome. So let's start with yours because I have, so that, so that it, and I'll share this with you off the air, but I, I wrote a couple years ago an eerily similar thing to what you just wrote about. And I want to offer one tiny, tiny suggestion off the back. I, I think an argument can be made that actually taking the system updates is not a bad way to start the morning. If it's about a five to 10 minute upgrade on your computer, that's a perfect time to kind of become more awake yourself. And at the same time, have a good excuse for not getting more work done. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and, and that's a good point. But the, the fear with doing something like that is that if your boss does work in and does see your screen and sees the updates there, then they know that you're just getting things started. Like you haven't yeah, been there that's for a true. while. That's true. You, you have to time it properly so that it looks like you're almost upset that the update's happening. You know, like, oh, I would do that, but my computer's been updating all day. You know, maybe you can, you can yeah. play it in there somehow. But I, I, will, I, I will ask you this. What, uh, what concerns do you have of your boss or coworkers hearing, uh, hearing these work tips? Do you, do you worry that uh, they might start peeking in on the bathroom stalls? <laughs> um, that's a valid concern. And, you know, some bathroom stalls are more secure than others. You know, the, the gaps. Yeah. You, you definitely have to mind the gaps when picking a good stall for this Absolutely. type of thing. Because uh, you can walk by and take a peek in from time to time and tell if someone's how, sleeping or not. So. How, let me ask you this. How has that not been fixed yet? I mean, we can put a man on the moon, but we can't fix the bathroom uh, gap. Doesn't that seem kind of bizarre to you? In, I mean, really? In, yeah. You know, I've, I've heard stories that Europeans, when they come to America, you know, in and all the, the vulgar lifestyles they live are absolutely horrified yeah. by our bathroom it's, stalls and the lack of privacy. It's a voyeurism paradise in there. It's absolutely disgusting. And maybe we'll devote another episode in the future. But anyways, continue, continue. Yeah, absolutely. It's not hard to walk into an American bathroom and get a sneak a peek of things you Terrible. don't want to see. Terrible. Well, let me, so this actually connects. I, I want to I ask you this, uh, this question. Would you say, um, or rather, let me ask it in the form of a question. What would you say the, uh, the deeper meaning of your story is? And so kind of on the surface, we have a, a, a list of examples of things people can do to kind of get through the day with as little effort as possible. I sense that you're getting at a deeper message. Is, am I onto something or is this really just supposed to be a list of things to do to get through your workday? Well, this is uh, this list is kind of the it, it, it's a list of things that I've realized myself to <laughs> to subconsciously start doing. And my strategies at work have assimilated closer to what I just read than what they quote unquote should be. So instead of going in and getting motivated by, you know, making my company more money or by making the high ups more money, I find myself more in a position of just trying to get by just trying and not just trying to get by like I, trying to be successful but by putting in as le least amount of effort right. as possible and in reducing the time that i am at work and the energy that i do spend so that when i am off of work it gives some more energy and i think this is just a, a problem with society and a problem with what we as a culture have told people is the status quo for making money etc cetera, etc cetera. so yeah. 
I don't. I hopefully this is a temporary situation for me. But well, let me ask you this: if yeah. while I'm while I'm here, I might as well get good at it and implement as many hacks. Right, as I can, right. Well, right. So let me ask you this: so I heard something interesting the other day from uh, Eric Weinstein, who is you know among other reasons for fame, also has his own podcast and obviously a really smart guy. And he was talking the other day about jobs, and he described jobs as a way to do wealth redistribution. That basically jobs are what we now use to distribute wealth in society. Now, on a level that makes kind of like obvious sense, like obviously you're being paid by someone to do a job. But for some reason, when mm -hmm. he phrased it that way about, you know, this is how we distribute income. I, I had never really thought of it that way. And it, it, it really did kind of put um, the, the, the primacy on, you know, we, we hear all the time people talking about creating jobs, creating jobs. My mind's always, well, you're just creating jobs, but you need to be creating wealth with those jobs. But it almost, it almost seems like if people are, are, are doing this all the time at their work, that if they're trying to get as little done as possible, then it's, it's almost like, well, what, what even is the value of a job at that point? You know, it's almost like we're just wasting both mm -hmm. companies' time. We're wasting the employee's time and we're wasting the employer's time almost. Yeah. And you think that some that, that would get worked out through the through the free market of a private company. You know, for example, if certain workers aren't carrying their weight, you think that they would be in the company's best interest to identify and get rid of them. Uh, but that is an interesting concept because we are, as a society, collectively pushing people through college to get these types of jobs. And then all these jobs are so eerily right. similar. Like there's a lot of similarities between them, even though they could be across many different industries. So maybe, maybe there is something to it that this is more of a redistribution of wealth scheme rather than a, rather than a, a private enter enterprise. Well, and, and one thing I've thought about recently too is, and I, I want to get your take on this is I, clearly companies, one of the things that they use to argue for, you know, whether it's tax incentives or to relocate to a town or to a state, they always promote the number of jobs they're going to create. Do you think that there's some optimum level mm -hmm. of job that uh, a company gets in order to like satisfy some criteria for, a, a, let's say that there's some tax credit out there that exists, that as a company, it's maybe in your financial interest to have a couple of, you know, bullshit jobs on the, on the books to persuade somebody to give you a better tax deal. And like, maybe you you make more money through that deal that it more than covers the salaries of the BS jobs, people that you have on the books. So there's like some optimum level of job beyond the actual productivity of the job itself. Yeah, that's a good point because from a, from a private industry perspective, it doesn't make much sense. So there has to be some sort of artificial, artificial, uh, you know, you know, limits or, or places that people are pushed into. So from that perspective, yeah, I could totally see that happening. I also think that with today's culture and, and society and everything, that it is uh, a lot more difficult to fire people nowadays than before. Like even people that are obvious low performers at my job, it takes, it takes years to fire these people. Like they have to have continuous low performance, like several performance management talks with the manager and if they fall under certain characteristics or certain categories, it makes it a lot harder to be fired than others for fear of, you know, civil lawsuits or uh, other whistleblowers that can make a scene as such things.
So I think that plays into it. Let me ask you this. What if, if your, if your company offered you to work same salary, same benefits, if they offered you everything to be the same, but they only require that you worked four hours a day, but the catch is that you actually had to work four hours a day. Would that be a trade that you would take versus your current situation? Or do you think that now your situation is such that you're getting away with more than that and that it would be beneficial to just keep on doing what you're doing? Oh, that's, that's an interesting question. And part of the problem is, is that I, it, it's a motivation problem rather than, a, than an actual amount sure. of time problem. So to say work dedicated to this cause for four hours a day, you know, if my heart's not aligned with that cause, it's going to be tough no matter what. But at the same time, I think that that would allow a lot more productivity in my life outside of work because I wouldn't be so exhausted and tired and have to go through all that effort. And then additionally, I found that in, in my life, I'm really only able to, to produce about three hours of creative work a day, if that. And that's over an entire day. Right. So th- this idea that people are going to go to the workplace and contribute eight productive, creative hours of work, I, I think that's amazing. I mean, just, just think of how hard it would be to even do menial tasks for eight hours a day. Like if I told you, all right, read this book. I'd be like, I could read that for a couple hours maybe, and then I'm going to need to take a break. <laughs> like, and that, yeah, and, that and would be assume it's exactly, a book you that enjoy. would be boring work, right? I, uh, so I, I have this this hypothesis uh, and I've, I've, I've worked at a couple places and I, I, I see it kind of wherever I go. I have this suspicion that humans are not even nearly utilizing computers as much as they are able to in terms of like simple automation. And so on the one hand, we have people like Andrew Yang who are really, really worried about automation. And I, I get what they're saying. And I've, I know that I've expressed some of those fears to you uh, in, in the, Mm -hmm. Uh, the past but at the same time i see so many people doing jobs that they could easily automate you know whether it's like a simple vba macro or you know using an excel spreadsheet or something that if we could make work less uh cumbersome you know it would still be boring but it would be less tedious then that might be a way to to save creative energy for outside the workplace because my feeling is that people Obviously, they want the money of a job, but at the same time, they want to reserve enough personal energy so that when they get home, they can pursue tasks that they find meaningful. And so that's the position that a good number of people are in. And I worry that so many people are getting burned out in the office on on a daily basis, doing things that could very easily be done by a computer, but they were just never taught how to do it on a computer. And so they're, they're doing it manually using all this energy, all this stress, they get off of work and they go home and they're, they're, they're too burned out to pursue what they actually want to pursue. Have you observed something similar to that where you've worked? Yeah, I think that a lot definitely can be replaced with computer algorithms or with some VBA code or something like that. But there's also a lot of uh, people problems and those types of problems that, man, you know, managing other people that, that uh, probably isn't as easily achieved with macros or that type of thing. But it that's interesting what you were saying about the people that do go in and spend all this, all the day's energy at work and then go home with nothing. They, they have no energy to bring home after the days that the day that they're in the office. 
And those are the people that are successful in those environments because they've aligned their life right. with their work somehow. You know, they either willingly or unwillingly somehow uh, merged their their values and whatever money they're making for the CEOs at yeah, the company and, and they work for. Yeah, and also just the shareholders. So th- those are yeah, the interesting well, people. This so yeah, the this conversation reminds me of a really interesting uh, newsletter that I got probably close to like ten years ago. It's from a, a fairly prolific rabbi called uh, Rabbi David Wolpe. He's kind of a religion uh, popularizer, I guess maybe the term. He's frequently debated people like Sam Harris, etc. He's kind of part of that crowd, uh, but on the religious side, and um, I really like him. I think he says a lot of insightful things. He was talking about the status of work in modern society and picking up on a lot of the things that you're talking about. And one of the things he was saying is that it's really important to not spend your whole life doing something that you truly don't believe in, because like it or not, this whole idea of, well, you're not defined by your job. You're defined by something else kind of, but you're working five days a week, eight hours a day. Your job is a big part of who you are, whether you want it to be or not, that is going to be part of what defines your life. And so you, you need to be proud of what you're doing. And if you're not proud of what you're doing, the question then should become, what are you doing to get to a job that you are proud of doing? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I can say for myself, uh, really the only motivation I have to go to work at this point is uh, just to keep storing up money so that I can you know, keep collecting that paycheck so that in a few years I can you know, take an extended mini retirement or sabbatical type thing where I can start pursuing some of the other things that I enjoy doing that I don't necessarily have the bandwidth to do um, while working a nine yeah, to five and job. I, and I think that situation encompasses a great many people. Um, I mean, I know this has gotten brought up in our past episodes, but I mean, the idea of aligning yourself with things that you truly believe in, if you're not doing that, then it's like, well, then what else are you doing? And then you're missing... <laughs> you're missing something really big because again, this is going to be a big part of your life. You know, we only live once and it seems a a shame to me that so many people are spending, you know, the best years of their life. Right. I mean, not only right now are you're, you're the youngest, but you have probably Mm -hmm. the least amount of responsibility that you're going to have from here on out. I mean, the, the golden years in, in, in some sense, and they're uh, being, spent on things that, that people don't truly believe in. Well, yeah, it's a, it's a catch 22 in that sense, because you can spend your twenties just slaving away and doing, you know, doing all this work, doing work and making money. And the benefit is that you get to take advantage of compound interest. You know, it's better to make X amount of dollars early in life than later in life. Uh, but the risk is if you were just someone who would take off your tw- take off your twenties and not work so diligently or not work so hard, uh, you would miss out on a lot of earnings, and that would add up to more years right. that you have to work in yeah. your life. You know what I mean? Like it would extend your retirement date, but you would get your twenties as opposed to working hard in your twenties and then uh, being able to retire earlier. Right. No. At least as the planning goes. I mean, you know, we talked about this on the podcast too. I mean, nobody knows the future, right? I mean, you may save up all your life for your retirement and then, you know, get in a horrible car accident or something. I mean, that's, these things happen. It's, it's very sad. It's unfortunate, but 
there's 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 risks in every decision that we make. And I mean, I, I think the most resilient path forward, and this just reminds me of like Viktor Frankl, this idea of like e making every day meaningful. But it's hard to make every day meaningful if you're spending the best hours mm -hmm. of the day trying to look busy. You're trying to look like uh, our hard worker, you know, trying to impress the people that you don't really care about. It's it's hard to live up to, the, to that notion of of treating every day, uh, you know, with with uh, or in, in its uh, in a in a proper way. It's hard to do that when at the face of it, it's just it's demoralizing. Um, I mean, is it do do you find that having long term goals is a motivator for getting through the workday? Or after a while, did they kind of lose steam? Uh, yeah, the long-term goals yeah. are the only things really keeping me going. You know, the the prospect of being able to quit maybe in a few years by the age of 30 or something and take some time off to explore other things for myself without having to worry about money. Uh, that's really the biggest motivator that gets me out of bed every morning to go to work. I think, How about you? What do you think? I mean, I, I agree a lot with what you're with what you're saying, and I, I certainly worry about uh, you know spending the best years of my life and and kind of looking back when I'm 50 and going like, like what did I really accomplish? You know, I, that that that's a little demoralizing. Um, I think I think uh, the the place I work now is is a place that I could see working long term, but it's kind of an interesting setup because I. The, the mission of the place where I work now, it, because it's kind of in a, a split between the public and the private sector. Uh, so I work at a utility. I, I won't say where, but I work at a utility. Um, and so there, it, it's kind of nice knowing that there is there is a, a public benefit of the work that we're doing. Uh, obviously, it's still motivated by, by uh, shared prices, et cetera, but it's kind of splitting that difference. Um, so that that feels nice. There's, there's a little bit of, um, of pride in that work. But I mean, at, at the same time, it's the question of like, would I do this job for free? No. <laughs> so then it's like, so the money is a factor, right? So, <laughs> so definitely the, the money is important as well. I think for, for me, what I want is a job where, you know, one of the things that I like doing, you know, in my own time is I like, you know, I like puzzles. I like creativity. I like problem solving. I like those kind of things. Um, when I when I don't have those in my life, I, I really do lose a lot of motivation and a lot of stamina. I, I feel myself being drained when I'm working at, when I'm doing things that are that are boring. Um, so I'm definitely somebody who's motivated by complexity and by problem solving. And as long as I can see how those problems translate to some kind of improvement, then I have enough motivation to do them well. But it's when things feel too simple or too repetitive that I just mm -hmm. quickly lose motivation and. Uh, you know, effort and other things. So in a given eight hour workday, how many hours would you say that you actually are engaged like, in productive? In yeah. I mean, types of work. I would, I'm kind of in a lucky spot in hell because most of my day to day work actually involves reading things. And so like, because I have, if I don't read it carefully, then I'll, I'll miss something. It's like, there's a motivation there to like not get in trouble basically uh, and to see the work done properly. So because I have the reading mm -hmm. to, to do, um, you know, I would say at least four hours of like very focused work. And then probably the remainder of the day is spent doing correspondence. You know, you're talking about email earlier, um, that kind of thing. I, uh, the, 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 the projects I have right now require a lot of emailing, a lot of correspondence. And so, you know, and that, takes another kind of energy because it's like, well, I got to 
make sure that I say this the right way. I don't want to come across, you know, the wrong way. And so that, that definitely ends up taking more energy and more time than, than I think you would think, you know, before you start doing that kind of thing a lot, uh, sending emails at work is different than like sending emails or texting your friends or something. Mm -hmm. But, um, but yeah, I mean, as far as the, the engaging work, I mean, I would say right now, probably close to four, but it's largely because what I'm doing just requires that, that it would be hard to like slack off and reading a document because it would be obvious that I wasn't reading it the right way. So, okay. I do want to cut to talking about your story a little bit or your piece a little bit, but I want sure. to just add one more closing thought to this before we go. Yeah, sure. One of the things that bothers me most about work is obviously if I'm going to be going there, I'm going to be trying to be successful. I'm going to be trying to get raises. I'm going to be trying to get promotions. I'm going to be trying to, to do as best as I can in the eyes of my employer. But the problem with that is that in order to rise in the ranks and in order to perform at a high level in the eyes of the, of the employer, it requires certain changes to my personality that I don't know if I'm quite comfortable making. Like, let me, let me give you an example. Like a big part of my job is, is performance managing people that, that perform suboptimally or don't perform to the expectations that they're held to. And I don't really like doing that. I don't like telling people that they're doing a, lot, a bad job. I don't like having to control other people's lives and tell them the types of things that they can and can't do or when they're doing a bad job. Like, I'm, I'm not a big fan of that. But I'm starting to reach this point where, where in order to be successful at the company and to rise up, like, I have to, in, in essence, rewire myself to... To, to be more authoritative like that or more authoritarian, right. which kind of is at odds with my moral character. <laughs> yeah. Or even just your temperament. I mean, and you make a really good point. Yeah. It's, and it's also kind of in a weird position too, because like, you know, you just had this funny story about, you know, how you try to go through the whole day doing as little work as possible. And now your boss is saying, Hey, we want you to, you know, make sure that other, you know, that your uh, people working under you are, are getting their, their work done. You know, it's almost like a level of hypocrisy almost, right? Because it's like you're trying to slack at work and at the same time you're being charged with making sure other people aren't doing that. So it's kind of a weird, a weird kind of thing that you're kind of in the middle of. Yeah, it's a it's just a tough spot to be in overall. Now I want to look at your story. Sure. A a a rebuke to Pascal's wager. Um my first question is centered around your friend Carlos. Yes. Now, yes. You, who you who is a real it. person? He is a real person. By a way. real person. Okay. Is, is he actually of Cuban descent as well? He is. Yes. 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 He was a very good friend of mine. Yeah. Okay. Um, my first question is, you said that he would just be able to stand and deliver. Uh, does that mean that he could vomit without any sort of fingers or gag reflex being triggered or pulling the trigger type action? Exactly. I mean, this, this kid, I mean, it's, you know, you have some memories that are just locked into your mind forever. I mean, I, this this kid was a machine. He was at our house. He had a, a stomach virus, and his it, both of his parents worked, and so he was at our house. My mom was going to keep an eye on him during the you know normal course of the day. I was about to go to school, so this is during a weekday. And so, you know, I'm getting dressed. I'm already for school and everything. Uh, Carlos is on the couch. You know, he's not feeling well. And then I'm sitting there. We're watching the morning news or whatever, and, you know, all of a sudden I see him stand up. And he walks to the bathroom and I kind of follow him a little bit because I'm young and don't know what is and isn't appropriate. I kind of watch him and I, 
I see him just look over the toilet and just vomit. I mean, without even like lurching, without any sudden movement, just the calmest, most controlled vomit I've ever seen in my entire life. This kid was in fourth grade. I mean, what is that? To this day, if I throw up, I'm taking a sick day the next day. I can't recover in 24 hours from throwing up. <laughs> this kid yeah. leans over the toilet, dumps it out like a champion, and then goes back to watch more morning cartoons. It's unbelievable. Unbelievable. Uh, that's, that's a talent to have. That's, a, that's very impressive. Very impressive. I, I would like to know where he is today and just ask him if that's still a talent that he has retained over the years. Because I was so impressed by it as a child. Yeah, I mean, that would be a, a game changer for, for being hungover or for drinking in general. I Absolutely. think that that would be a, a useful talent or just weight management. Okay. Not that we endorse uh, playing on this podcast. Yeah, the Roses and Rhetoric podcast is not... <laughs> not we did not give medical advice. <laughs> What's that? Yeah. <laughs> Disclaimer. Uh. Um, I liked what you said about... You described a feeling as Reese, how recess feels to a child. Yes. Now I, I, I really like that comparison because that's, that's actually something I was thinking about recently is just, you remember being a kid and just how, like how, how good certain things felt like Christmas day or, you know, recess or PE class. Or last day, last day of school. Right. I mean, remember when well, summer, last day of school, summer yeah. felt like an eternity. It's like three months. I'll be I'll, I'll be, you know, three years older by the time three months goes by. It's like, well, not quite, but you're, you're on the right track. I mean, three months when you're a kid feels like a lifetime. Yeah, maybe three inches taller. over three, the summer. Yeah, right. I mean, I'm waiting for my growth spurt. But yes, from, from what I've heard, some people do <laughs> actually. Yes. But yeah, it's it's a weird feeling. There's all these types of unique feelings that I would have as a kid that I don't know if I necessarily feel today, or maybe I'm just a little, a little desensitized to them. Like there's a, there's a certain feeling like the first day of school had, right? Like I, I that I never really experienced outside of that. You know, just like the smell of of school supplies and crayons and all that shit. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I I know for me, I know the feeling you're talking about. For me, a lot of that feeling was just this idea of excitement and anticipation and a sense of wonder. And the idea that, you know, this year's and I have all of these, you know, stories ahead of me. I mean, when you're when you're a kid, even though you're in school and you have, you know, the same school day every day, in fact, you have a lot of variety going on in your life because you have things after school, you have new classmates, you have new teachers, you know, versus when you're working, it's like you have your coworkers and you can be with the same coworkers for like a decade. You know, when mm-hmm. you're when you're a kid, you have so much more variety in your life. Um, that you're always experiencing something new and exciting. Yeah, yeah, for sure, hundred percent. And then, so if I could talk about your, well, actually, before I go to the next step or the next topic, I wanted to talk about uh, what your what your experience or your opinions was were with school and going through the the school system. Mm-hmm. Um for myself looking back i kind of i can see it both ways like i think that uh going to school corrupted me in a lot of ways in the sense that you know i was like i i felt more more at terms with myself more like myself before i went to school before i started getting corrupted by all the peer pressure and friends and bullies and uh you know class systems 
of that school had. But on that same token, it did help improve social skills and like interacting with other people and just kind of learning how the world works at a deeper level than you would if you were, say, homeschooled. Um, do you see the same pros and cons and how do you, how do you, where, where do you see the trade-off being or would you change your education strategy at all as a result of that? Um, I, for, for me, I had a truly amazing and positive pre-K through eighth grade experience. It was amazing. I always had great teachers. I always had good classmates. I am still friends today with people that I met in kindergarten and pre-K. Um, and it, I went to a small school, and so I think that was definitely part of it. But um, I, I loved going to school through grade school. Um, I felt that I always had teachers who challenged us on our ideas, that introduced new things, that made it fun. Um, my feeling on high school is a little different. Um, I think my feeling on, in high school is that it was largely a waste of time and that if I could have done high school again, I would have tried really, really hard to graduate early and to have taken classes at a community college to make college shorter as well because I have similar feelings about college. Um, I think both are generally good, but that they take way too long and that the extra time you're spending there is a time that can be better spent doing something else, uh, probably almost anything else, honestly. Um, <laughs> so my, my feeling on K through eight, it was, you know, for me, truly great. I, I loved it. I really loved going to school. I, I loved my friends. I loved all my teachers. I can still name every teacher I've had except for my pre-K teacher, I bet. Um, I do not feel the same way about high school, and I do not feel the same way about college. That's interesting. I I think that my experience would be the exact opposite. I think that most of the corruption that happened to, to myself and most of the the identity forming that happened in my own life happened during K through eight. Hmm. And then once I made it to high school, it you know, because I, I went to a Catholic school that I was attended the same classes and the same people from kindergarten all through eighth grade. So mm-hmm. When you're in situations like that, it's hard to redefine yourself or re-identify yourself as you go. So that gap in between K through eight and high school gave me a, a good opportunity to break free from some of my self-imposed limits and chains and hmm. re-identify myself a little bit. Yeah, interesting. And that, and then again, that same thing happened in college. So for me, that's that's what I saw. But I I, under, I also understand exactly what you're saying as well. Um, looking forward here on my notes, uh, just to recap a little bit of your piece. You were making the argument that to use Pascal's wager and as a as a scapegoat for believing in God, really is a really is a way to 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 comfort oneself and believing there's an afterlife and in that comfort you're saying that's kind of an easy out for people to live by and you're advocating uh resisting that urge is that along the lines of what you're saying uh it's close let me let me uh make a, a slight modification so i wouldn't i wouldn't say that pascal's wager is necessarily uh taking the easy way out i think more importantly 
he answers the wrong question. I, I, what I would say is the fundamental question to ask is, can we perpetuate justice indefinitely? And the, to answer that question, we either have to argue if whether or not justice is, is worthy of our pursuits. I would argue that by definition, justice is worthy of our pursuits. And that yeah, and what, do you, what do you mean by justice? What, sure. In this case? Yeah. So I would say justice, and I, I like Plato's definition of justice, giving each their due. And then the debate is deciding amongst rational people what is each other's due. I'm not going to say that I have the answer to all these questions. I will simply say that they are questions that are worth asking. And that not only are they worth asking, but they're worth perpetuating because without humans being alive, it's possible that justice stops existing, that justice literally ceases to exist if there are not rational beings, even if they're imperfectly rational, like people obviously are not always irrational, but we do have that capacity to a limited degree, that if humans stop existing, then there's a, there's a possibility that justice stops existing as well. And so what I would, I would argue as a rebuttal to Pascal's wager is that the, the safer bet from the point of view of perpetuating justice is to work towards creating a universe that does not end and that is also just. Namely, humans develop a just society and then work to perpetuate that society. That I think is a, a better framework than simply believing in God with the hopes that it, that it pays off by heaven being real. I think that mm -hmm. the justice approach is more robust because if God exists, our pursuit of a just society would benefit us. And then if God does not exist, pursuing a just society also benefits us. And so it's, I, in my opinion, it's, it's a more robust answer to the, the, uh, the God question. Okay. So to me, that begs the question, why is, why is justice needed? Why is that one of the, the pillars of, of human existence like why do we need justice sure because is is it is it not a subjective definition depending on who you ask well so i think the answer to that question is that it's unknown and that we don't know if justice ultimately is subjective or objective but that we should we should pursue it as if it were objective in order to see if it is that in other words we should we should work to create a society that is that is truly just including how we define justice and what we consider to be justice, but that is part of the work of creating the just society that, that is then, it, then worth perpetuating. And so it, it's so, both a process and an end goal. So a just society, would that mean that everyone has the same ideas of what is just? Uh, I think it would at a minimum require people be committed to pursuing justice as a fundamental, that belief would have to be universal. And then beyond that, it's the conversation or the debate amongst the humans of earth on the specific questions that arise. And I don't, I don't know that, you know, it's like if you try to define justice for the whole world, you end up with a very vague statement about giving each their due, which is probably just more of a starting point. But then at the different levels, you know, justice for things that involve your family, you know, one-on-one -on -one interactions, you know, maybe that has different considerations. And then when you get to say the, the country level, maybe it's different there as well. The book that I'm reading now by Nassim Taleb is uh, called Skin in the Game. 
And one of the things that he argues is that these, these things that we pursue in life change based on the scale. And so the way that you interact with, a, with a, another person is fundamentally different than the way that you interact with uh, a country or the way that you interact with a state that it's, you have emergent properties that are, that are based on the number of people that you're interacting with and that that changes the types of interactions that you have. And so I, I think that there is some, some sense to there, but we still have to have a commitment to pursuing what is right and what is wrong. That has to be a fundamental belief. And then from that, we can begin to work out the particulars. So what, what is wrong and what is right? Are you saying that needs to be explored on a on an individual level or is it a collective level? I, it needs to be explored on a level that deals with the people involved in the situations. So like right now in my life, there are things that I should not do to myself. And then I happen to be married. There are things that I shouldn't do to my wife uh, or, or, you know, to, to her in an emotional sense, obviously I shouldn't, I shouldn't harm her. But um, I, I would mm-hmm. say that a good starting place for justice seems to me to be, truth and honesty that if, if you're mm-hmm. unsure of what to do in a particular situation default to being transparent and default to telling the truth and default to being honest that that is a good mm-hmm. starting place for deciphering what is right and what is wrong i'm not saying that it has all the answers and obviously people debate morality and justice i mean this this has been going on for thousands of years i, I pretend to have any special insight into you know these ultimate questions but I do think they're worth pursuing, and I and I and I, I do think that a good starting place for them is honesty and is seeking truth. Okay, yeah, I see. Uh, I see people talk about morality a lot, but the part I struggle with morality is that it's it's entirely a man-made creation. Like there's no there's no capital T truth to it. In other words, it's just the consensus of the herd is what defines a morality or that's what it feels like in a lot of situations. Yeah, I, I agree that that's what it feels like in a lot of situations. I don't know that I would, that that would be what it is. And I would say that at, at some level, I, I do think that that things uh, that happen in this universe are are truthful or, or are not truthful. I think that... Um, things can be said to have happened or not to happen. And that, that, is, that is true, even though human beings are not the best witnesses and that we have our own confusions. I still think fundamental questions uh, can be asked about, you know, say the order of an event or something um, mm-hmm. that, that can be said to be truthful. And then, you know, again, coming back to the idea that the, the starting point of being honest and, and being truthful are at least a way to start a conversation about what is right and what is wrong. Because without starting there, if you disagree on the premise, then it's hard to see how two parties would reach the same conclusion. And so at least it seems to me that the best starting place is always to come back to agreeing on, on, on you know, finding some fundamental to agree on and then going from there. So let me pose an example. You have... You have two different people that are in a disagreement about what punishments there should be for a certain crime. Mm-hmm. Let, let's take uh, drug possession. Sure. So you have 50% of the people, or one person rather, would say that, oh, if someone's caught with an ounce of heroin, they should be you know, given the death sentence, or they should be locked up for years. Mm-hmm. And then you have other people that are saying, no, they shouldn't be. 
they're really not it's a victimless crime maybe and they're not hurting anybody so there shouldn't be any punishment how can you use you know or how can you use honesty and transparency as a starting point to reconcile those two people's opinions on the matter sure so the first thing would be to get each group to uh, agree or to establish what they are trying to achieve with their punishment. Are they trying to achieve mm-hmm. rehabilitation? Are they trying to achieve deterrence? Are they trying to achieve punishment in and of itself that is some kind of retributive justice? You know, that's, for example, people argue that for the death penalty in, in some cases, that the idea is that you've harmed society and that we have a right to punish you for punishment's sake. Um, I think. When it, when it comes to having punishment, it's important to establish what you're trying to achieve with the punishment. And that is a, that is a conversation where I think you have very uh, divergent opinions on. And so even that isn't going to make things super simple, right? I mean, you might have group A trying to achieve one thing, group B trying to achieve another thing. And then you just have to ask the question again. And I think you, you absolutely run the risk of this being a recursive exercise where you never hit something fundamental. But I think as, as humans, we have an obligation to pursue that line of questioning to the best of our ability, because the risk of not having justice, if it exists, seems to me to be uh, too great a risk to not pursue to find it. So is it possible that justice is ultimately just a, a subjective thing? A hundred percent. That is absolutely possible. But it's also possible that it is not. And because there is a possibility of finding an objective justice, I think that we owe it to ourselves to pursue that path. So, and I, I was recently listening to uh, Matthew McConaughey. He's got some interviews out. He, he's made the circuit, you know. I, he's on, I love Matthew McConaughey. He's on Ferris. He was him. on Rogan. Yeah. yeah, I watched Days and Confused last night. Uh-huh. It's, a, it's a great movie. <laughs> oh, it's fantastic. <laughs> oh, so, yeah, side note. It's his first acting role, and he wasn't even an actor. He was just kind of an extra hand on the movie set. He was, he was, up... he was just at the high school. Yeah. They filmed him live. He didn't even have like, camera. <laughs> well, you guys are filming. Yeah, yeah, Holy just... shit. <laughs> all right, all right, all right. I, they just brought him in as a, as a leading role, pretty much. Let me, let me give a, killed it. A, a quick shout out. For anybody who has not seen the first season of True Detective, Ooh. go watch it. it that. That season itself is worth paying the subscription to HBO just to watch. It is such a good season of television and touches on what we're talking about here, justice, retribution, et cetera. It is a great season of television, probably one of my favorite seasons of a TV show of all time. Wow. That's a bold statement. Yeah, right there. And, it, and, it, and it will live up to the hype, I guarantee it. But, you know, I, I believe that because Matthew McConaughey, one of the things he was saying is that that as he was growing up, the word can't was like, was banned from his vocabulary. Like in other words, his parents would punish him if he used the word can't. <laughs> and I just thought that was super interesting. That explains why he's such a successful person today. Cause if you habitually remove that word from your vocabulary, it's going to, it's going to open some doors for you. But that's not the point that I wanted to talk about from the interview. He, he referenced uh, something called an egotistical egalitarian mindset. Hmm. And that plays in with a lot with like with what Ayn Rand suggests, where by focusing in on yourself and doing your own things and living your own life and setting your own individual subjective values. I mean, Ayn Rand 
talks about trying to find objective truths, but w- within the reference frame of finding them through logic and finding them through yourself and how when you take care of yourself, uh, more often than not, the rewards will trickle out to others. It's kind of like secure your own your own uh, air supply before helping others on a right, plane type right, thing. Right, right, absolutely. But but this look for a individual code of justices or morals, um, do you see that as being at odds with with the things you were describing with the more objective collective? Yeah, well, so uh, justice. <sighs> Again, I think it comes down to fundamentals. So with Ayn Rand, for example, even in her framework of basing things off of the ego of the individual, there is still the notion that as a rational human being, I have to respect the individual rights of another human being. That even if I want to take something from them, and even if I can take something from them, that I should not allow myself to do that, even if it would be uh, you know, in, my, in my immediate interest. Now, I, I think Ayn Rand would argue that you know, at a deeper level, because you're you're uh, corrupting your uh, your your life by doing something like that, that you're actually are, are harming yourself. And I I would agree with her on that. I, I think mm-hmm. that it would not be in your self interest to be a thief or to be a, a a a criminal. But even in that context, there's still this notion of the way people ought to live. And even in the uh, framework of of Ayn Rand. There, there is still a commitment to truth and there's still a commitment to reason that is posited as being objective, right? So like objectivism would be her philosophy. And so yep. you do have to have an individual responsibility for doing right and wrong. And you do have to have an individual um, perspective on, on specific actions, but all of us should be trying to use something fundamental for evaluating right and wrong. And uh, I, again, I, I don't have anything to contribute to that conversation that's been going on for thousands of years. But I would just say that if you're at a crossroads, base yourself as best you can in reality and in honesty and in truth. And again, as best you can, we're all flawed. We're all going to make mistakes, but do your best and let that be your first step towards trying to find an answer for the question you're facing. Well, that's great. Uh, do you have any other takeaways from your piece or any other messages you're trying to convey we haven't talked about? Uh, I do want to talk about his one-arm hook shot. Uh, so at Carlos had an amazing one-arm yes. hook shot, um, a shot that you don't see much anymore. I actually was listening to an NBA player explain why that is. I do not remember their name, but for some reason that this person explained, the one-arm hook shot is falling out of favor. Carlos had an amazing one-arm hook shot. And uh, I just want to say that not only was he a, a phenomenal volunteer, but he was a phenomenal ball player as well. And uh, so, Carlos, wherever you are, I hope you're doing well and um, I hope that life has treated you uh, fairly. Yeah, keep, keep hooking and puking. Keep hooking and puking. I couldn't say any better myself. Okay, well, I think that's a wrap. Do you want to close this out? As, very well. All right, everybody. Well, this has been episode five of the Roses Rendering podcast. We hope that you've enjoyed it. Uh, we hope that you've enjoyed this format. Uh, please do uh, like, share, and subscribe to our podcast. And uh, be sure to follow us on Twitter at Roses underscore Rhetoric. I am Jimmy Hackett signing off for Joseph Stanford saying ciao. We got a slow go on the 405 over here. We got a slow go on the 405. Uh, here goes another lightning round. <laughs> <laughs>